Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, we thank you that we have the chance to come together as a church and know that you are here in our midst, to know that you want to work in our midst. And so we pray tonight that you would do that. We pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts, encourage us, challenge us, rebuke us, correct us if necessary. Uh, We want to be willing to respond to whatever you want to say tonight to us as a group, but also to us as individuals. And so we are excited to hear what you would say to us tonight, and we look forward to watching your word bring relevance to our lives. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So the book of Revelation, we've said this before, but we'll say it again. The key to understanding the book of Revelation is to understand chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. And in that, we realize that this is not a book of revelations. This is not a book that's all about who is the Antichrist and what is the mark of the beast and what are all the the plagues and the bulls and the trumpets. This is a book with a very singular focus, and that is to reveal Jesus Christ and to reveal him to the hearts of the reader, but also to describe his final revealing at the end of time. And that is the point and purpose of this book. And if you understand that, then everything else really falls into place. If you see it as, well, I've got to unpack all the mysteries, then Revelation is a frustrating book. But if you see it as, okay, this book has a singular focus, and that is that Jesus Christ is central. He needs to be central to my life, but he's central to all of world history. Then if you can understand that, everything else in the book, you will understand all you need to know. And so we understand also in Revelation 1, the Lord gives John the outline of the book, where he says, I want you to write the things that you've seen, which is chapter 1, the things which are, which is chapters 2 and 3, and the things which will take place after this. And that's chapters 4 through the end of the book. And what we see is a period of the church age in chapters 2 and 3. That's where we uh, exist and habitate right now. And then we see the rapture of the church. And now we're reading about a period of the great tribulation, which is different from general tribulation that every Christian endures. This is the great tribulation. This is the judgment of God as God reclaims his right to rule the earth from Satan. He's, in essence, taking the title deed to earth back. And with that, there's judgment coming, but there's also the gospel coming. And with that, we see John sees a multitude beyond counting of people who have been saved during the Great Tribulation. We see, uh, we'll see him again tonight, but we've seen 144,000 Jewish evangelists saved from the nation of Israel and appointed and sealed by God to to carry the gospel. We're going to see tonight an angel proclaim the gospel in every language. And so, it's, it's such an interesting paradox where the Great Tribulation will simultaneously, if you will, be the best and worst time in all of human history because the gospel will go out in some ways more effectively than it ever has gone out before. But it will be so effective because the world will be so polarized. And it will be so effective because evil will be so real and so present and so undeniable that the world will have to reckon. At the end of the Great Tribulation, there will be no indifferent people regarding Jesus Christ. No one will be passive about who they think Jesus is. It will be two kinds of people. There will be those who say, I will follow Jesus Christ no matter what the cost. And there will be those who say, I will not follow Jesus Christ no matter what the cost. And so tonight, we find ourselves in the midst of that. But what we have in chapters 12, 13, and 14, and we've said as we're going through this, when we read prophecy, our goal as students of Scripture is to interpret it as literally as possible, as often as possible. And... You can hammer it, and you hammer it, and you hammer it, and then you get to Revelation 12 through 14, and you're like, dang, this is, in, this is like just, I was on a roll here. What happens in Revelation 12 through 14 is we get some imagery, okay? And so we are briefly stepping out of the need to fulfill prophecy, to see prophecy in a literal sense, we're seeing it in an imagery sense. Now with that, what does that mean? Okay, well it means a couple things, and it also doesn't mean a couple things. We're going to see... A woman described. And the text is pretty clear that it's the nation of Israel. We're going to see a dragon described. And the text is pretty clear that it's Satan. We're going to see, as we get into chapters 13, a beast and then another beast. And there's a couple of things where we're going to see an image that's supposed to describe something for us. And when we see this, we understand it for a couple of reasons. One, chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven. This is a little bit different. The word in Greek, great, is the word mega. So John is watching a mega sign go on here. This is something a little different. 
And he's given us that heads up. But when we come to imagery in the prophetic literature of Scripture, when we have a prophecy that contains imagery in Scripture, it's important that we don't make the images mean whatever we want them to mean. Okay, if we're at a place of imagery in Scripture, where the text is is pointing towards there's some imagery here, we need to interpret it in the context of Scripture and in the context of other prophecy and what are some other areas where the Lord may have addressed this. And so that's important. And so what we're going to do tonight, we are going to look through and we're going to say, okay, this is an image that's supposed to point us towards this or demonstrate a character attribute of this. But we're going to do it as consistently as we can within the context of the Scripture. So what I want to do is we're going to read all of chapter 12 in one go because if you try and break it up, it just feels really weird, at least to me. It may not to you, but I'm the one reading it, so that's that. Uh, So we're going to read chapter 12, and then we'll go back and kind of break it down, all right? So chapter 12, verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was the place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole earth, the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then, verse 10, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Now, verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, John sees a sign in heaven. He sees a woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the twelve stars under her feet. If we're looking at prophetic imagery through Scripture, the the other time in Scripture where we see this reference is when Joseph has a dream about his parents and his siblings bowing down to him, and he sees it as a sun and moon and twelve stars. And so most... Bible commentators would say, oh, that's probably consistent with the woman representing the nation of Israel. And that's one clue. The other clue is that she gives birth to a male child who rules all nations with a rod of iron. Who might that be? Well, in Revelation 19.15, it's describing the return of Christ, and it says, and he himself will rule them, that is, all the nations, with a rod of iron. So the woman that we see here is an image of the nation of Israel. The child is Christ. And what we see is the dragon is enraged with the woman because she gave birth to the child. What do we have here? And we have an image of the fact that Satan hates the Jewish people because from the Jewish people came Jesus Christ who will destroy Satan. Okay, and so understand also chapters 12 through 14 of Revelation. In essence, John is getting a prophecy of the entire end times. But 12 through 14, it's almost like he zooms up to an extra 30,000 feet, and then he'll zoom back down in chapter 15, okay? So right here, he watched in a great sign of the woman gave birth to the child. Well, at this point, Jesus Christ has already been born, right? So he's seeing an image of something that's actually already taken place in the past. When we get to the end of chapter 14, we'll see uh, he's, he's referencing saying that will actually be described later on 
in Revelation as well. So we're kind of seeing like a super big picture view here. But understand what's happening. The woman, the nation of Israel, is in a, in a earthly genetic context, the means by which Jesus Christ came into the earth. And for that reason, Satan hates the nation of Israel. Okay? You can watch it. You can, anybody who has ever pursued world history or any interest in it realizes that the Jewish people are the single most oppressed people group in the history of the world. For no apparent reason. It, it, just, it just doesn't, it, it defies all logic why the Jewish people are so oppressed. Unless you believe that the word of God is true, in which case you say, oh, there's actually a spiritual enemy who hates the nation of Israel. And it says here, that her child is caught up. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. In the Jewish calendar, if you have a 360-day year, this is three and a half years. And so what we have here, and Revelation alludes to this, that basically the Great Tribulation is a seven-year period. And it's divided in half, into two three-and-a-half-year sections. The first half will have at least the illusion of world peace. And the illusion of uh, one world religion, and we're all coming together and we can all tolerate each other. But at the midpoint, there's something that Daniel the prophet references and Jesus references in Matthew 24 as the abomination of desolation. And that'll be when the world leader, the Antichrist, declares himself to be God. And in that moment, what's going to happen is there's going to be a new holocaust begun against the Jewish people. And so <clears throat> what we have and we're going to see several times throughout here the idea that the Jewish people are going to be under massive persecution during the second half of the Great Tribulation. So, the woman is, she flees into the wilderness. She has a place prepared by God. God will not let the Jewish people be wiped out. But, there will be massive persecution against them during the second half of the Tribulation. And then, in the second chunk of chapter 12, it says, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angel against the dragon and his angels. And notice, the dragon, two things. It's Michael and his angels. Jesus is not sweating bullets trying to make sure he pulls out all the reserves. Jesus is not actually fighting this war right now. Jesus is in control enough that he can say, Michael, would you please go take care of Satan for me? I have, I'm, I'm doing something else. Not that he can't do it at the same time, but you know what I mean. The, Jesus is not out of options here. This isn't, this isn't a last cry battle plan. This is, Michael, go fight Satan. Kick him out of here. And we see in Scripture, like in the book of Job, that Satan is able to traverse between heaven and earth. Okay, Satan is not the boss of hell. He will someday be an inhabitant of hell, but he's not the boss of hell. And Satan is able to go back and forth between heaven and earth, and he's actually he's called the accuser of the brethren here. Satan's hobby or pastime or passion is to accuse us before the Lord of our sins and to remind the Lord of all the reasons why God should not love us. And the worst part is really he doesn't have to lie about it, right? Like there are plenty of reasons out there. So he goes and accuses us before the Lord and the Lord has just had enough. He says, you know, you are done coming to heaven anymore. This is it. And we talked about last week, if you will, that the seventh trumpet of judgment is the Lord saying, I am taking power and I am reigning. And the idea of, in effect, what's going to happen is Satan is going to be the kid losing his toy, having a tantrum. Well, in a, in a, if, you, if you carry out the metaphor, in chapter 12, in essence, what you have is Jesus says, you know what? Go to your room. You are not allowed here right now. And so the Lord banishes Satan and all his demonic forces out of heaven. But what that means is that they are now banished to earth. And that's why John hears an angel say, Rejoice, O heavens! And woe to the inhabitants of the earth. In heaven, it's like, all right, he's gone. There's just, and it's, you know, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we understand that heaven is perfect. And yet, in an obscure way that we're just not smart enough to grasp, Satan, up to this point, has been allowed to come back and forth. Well, at this point, he's now barred entry. And so heaven rejoices, but now that means that the entire demonic world is inhabiting the earth. Okay, and then... It says in verse 13 that when the dragon, that's Satan, saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Who's that? The nation of Israel. And but she's given the wings of an eagle that she can fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. 
In essence, a time is one. Times is two ones. So that's two more. And half a time. What is that? Three and a half. A time times and half a time is the second half of the Great Tribulation. A three and a half year period where the devil, being banished to the earth, is going to try to vent all of his rage on the Jewish people. And the Lord will preserve them. But it will be an awful time on earth. And so John is seeing all this. And then chapter 13. Mm -hmm. Chapter 13. I want to make sure I didn't skip anything. Verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The... So pause right there. I was trying to decide where to pause. I'm, I just decided right there. John sees a beast coming up out of the sea. And he starts to describe him to us. And if, you've, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this sounds an awful lot like what Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. You can turn there if you want to. I'm going to read it. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 19, he says, Then I wished to know, he has a vision of, of four beasts. And the fourth one, he says, is the worst of all of them. It's, it's terrifying. And he's asking the Lord for clarity on what this means. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 19 he says, Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. So the description is the same. They're both seeing this very odd, very disturbing, powerful beast coming up out of the sea, there's ten horns. One horn comes up and, and takes out three of the horns. And Daniel's trying to figure out what is going on here. Verse 21, Daniel says, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, this is the angel explaining to Daniel now, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all other kingdoms. And shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So Daniel sees this vision, and an angel comes to explain it to him and says, this is a fourth kingdom on the earth. And specifically, the horn, the main horn on this beast, is going to rise to power out of a ten-horn or a ten-king coalition, take out three of them in the process or topple three nations in the process, and come to world dominance. Now, so what we have here is what you could consider imagery, right? This isn't that there will be a literal beast that somebody fishes out of the ocean someday who then takes over the world. This is a picture that the Lord is giving us of what this leader and this kingdom will be like. Now, if, with that, if we're being consistent with biblical imagery, there are some things that we understand. It says he's rising up out of the sea. In biblical imagery, the sea is always the Mediterranean. So, this leader will come from somewhere, as far as we can tell, in the Mediterranean area. Um, another vision that Daniel has explains that basically the last kingdom on earth will be a Roman Empire, and then Christ comes. And in Daniel 9, he says the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city of Jerusalem. We know that the Roman army destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. So this kingdom is in some form or capacity going to be a, Roman, a revived Roman Empire. And there will be a leader who rises up out of that and replace a ten-leader a coalition. And verse 3 of Revelation 13, Daniel says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. So it would appear that the Antichrist, this, this horn that is rising to power, will survive an assassination attempt as part of his rise to power. 
And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who was able to make war with him? So that right there, understand what we know and what we don't know. That right there is pretty much the entire summary of what we have as far as what to expect and what to look for in the Antichrist, if your goal is to look for the Antichrist. Now, from there, let me just tell you, you can draw some fascinating speculation. And I've heard a lot of really, really interesting speculation. Some people say that maybe the ten kings are actually like ten tech leaders. You know, ten tech giants, because those guys really have more political power than a lot of leaders. Some people say maybe the ten nations are the EU, uh, because the EU has more than ten nations, but there's really only ten nations that have any significant voting power. And actually, uh, three of them are kind of opposed to giving too much power all at once. Maybe he'll topple those three nations. Some people have said, oh, the Antichrist is Vladimir Zelensky. Some people have said it's Emmanuel Macron. Some people have said it's Barack Obama. Some people have said it's Ronald Reagan. I heard one pastor this week who said some people say it's Barney the Purple Dinosaur. I didn't look it up because I didn't bother verifying it. But here's the deal. There's what we know and there's what we don't know. Paul tells us that the man of sin, which is Paul's description for the Antichrist, will be revealed after the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, after the church is raptured. So who's the Antichrist? We don't know. And here's the, here's, and here's the important part. It doesn't truthfully matter. Because we are not looking for the Antichrist. We are looking for the Christ. We are looking for the return of Jesus, for Jesus' ascendancy to full power. We are not looking for a world leader who's going to try to deceive us all. Our eyes are on Jesus. And so, yes, if you want to have speculation about is it a revived Roman Empire, or I've heard that it's, it's the Roman Catholic Church, or I've heard all kinds of crazy things. And sometimes you listen and you're like, wow. You know, there's a lot of good points there. But you know what the truth is? Nobody knows. Nobody has a clue. Because the man of sin, the Antichrist, has not been revealed. God has not shown who he will be. And truthfully, understand what that means also, Satan doesn't know who he is. Have you ever wondered why Mediterranean Europe is, just seems like to consistently produce so many psychopathic dictators? It could be in part... Because Satan is always trying to keep somebody ready. Because he doesn't know when the rapture comes. He doesn't know when Jesus is coming. Jesus said nobody knows the day or the hour except Jesus and the Father. That means Satan does not know when the end is coming. So he's always on a bit of a mission to make sure there's somebody in place ready to step into world power, ready to, to hate the Jewish people, ready to be a, a one world leader who will claim to be God. There's a, there's a reason world peace is not ever really going to be attainable. Because... There's a, there's a satanic force steering world power and trying to make sure there's always an opposition to Jesus Christ. So we understand some things about the rise of the Antichrist. He'll survive an assassination attempt. He'll come from the Mediterranean area. He'll be some part of some kind of revived Roman Empire. There'll be, he'll come out of a 10 leadership coalition. He'll t topple three of those guys in the process. That right there is pretty much it. Verse 5, he, we get just a little more detail. It says, And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months, three and a half years. He's speaking blasphemies. Then, verse 6, He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. The, the significant mark, as John is writing this, is not his power or who he is or, or how appealing he is, or his ability to deceive, it's that he is blaspheming God. Then, verse 7, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. This is really interesting. We're told that the Antichrist will make war with the saints and overcome them. Now, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So understand what's happening here. The church will not be prevailed against. But during the second half of the Great Tribulation, Christians will be prevailed against. And you say, well, what is, what's going on here? Here's what's going on. The Lord will be gracious, and there will be a massive revival of souls in the Great Tribulation. But 
That is no excuse to put off accepting Jesus Christ. Because in the great tribulation, to get saved will be to die. He says he will overcome the saints. He will wage a successful campaign against every Christian that he can find. So, you know, I, I know pretty much everybody in the room. I think pretty much everybody in the room is a Christian, but I don't know everybody super well. And so it's just sometimes worth saying, you know, the Lord Jude talks about different people come to the Lord different ways. Some people just need to be reminded of how much God loves them. Some people need to be reminded that hell is real. Okay, and if you're one of those people, you need to understand, don't put off anything. Don't put off getting serious about Jesus Christ. Because the Great Tribulation will not be good. And yes, you can still go to heaven, but there's a lot of hell on earth that you will have to experience in that process. And so verse 9, John says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Listen up. This is not a joke, and this is not a game. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Basically what John says right there is, if you're a Christian during this time, here's what you need to know. God will make thing, all things just. People who lead you into captivity, God will deal with them. And the people who kill you, God will deal with them. And that's, that's basically as good as it'll get for a Christian during, great, during the Great Tribulation. They will have heaven. They will, have, they will receive the Lord. They will have an opportunity. They will be with the Lord forever. But understand what it will mean to suffer through that on earth. John says, your hope on earth will be, I guess the Lord's going to bring justice at some point. And that'll, that'll be pretty much it. So do not play games with the Lord right now. You have an opportunity. And you do not know how long that opportunity is. Verse 11, John says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. It's interesting. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. This guy, he looks like a lamb, but he's... A dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So people refer to the, the first beast as the Antichrist, and they often refer to this guy as the prophet. Because basically he's going to be the spokesman or the sidekick for the Antichrist. Verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. And if you think this book is about the revelations, then this is your chapter right here, okay? But, so we see the rise of a prophet. He's going to be basically the spokesperson for the Antichrist. And just like the Antichrist, this person has not been fully revealed. So who is it? No stinking clue, all right? I don't know. You don't know. And Benny Hinn doesn't know either. Nobody knows. So, but we, do, we are given some insight into this person. He's going to exercise great signs. He'll be able to make fire come down from heaven. What does that look like? I'm not totally sure. We see something really interesting, though, in that he's, he creates an image of the beast, and he breathes life into it, it says. Now, we, wanna, we still, when we see imagery, when we see it being told, this is what's going to happen, we still don't ever want to get to the point of like, oh, it can't be literal. We want to get to the point of, okay, I don't really get it. I think this is imagery. If this is literal, I'm okay with that. I'm still trusting the Lord. At any other point in history, if somebody would have said, you know, somebody's going to rise to power who's going to make an image and breathe life into it, we would have said, I'm sorry, I'm really having a hard time seeing that one in my mind. Right? Interestingly, and this is where you speculate, and you don't, you don't claim this is Scripture, but just interestingly, we happen to live in an era of human history where we have something called artificial intelligence and we have something called robotics. And it is not that far-fetched right now to imagine somebody creating a robot that would look just like the world leader at the time and infusing it with artificial intelligence that could potentially create an algorithm of some sort that would say, for the sake of human good, 
You all need to worship the beast to establish world peace. Now, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I'm just saying we live in a world, as we get closer and closer to the end, we live in a world where a lot of these prophecies that sounded really far out now sound very much like they could happen right now. Okay, so this image that it receives breath that causes all men to worship the beast, what is it? I can't tell you for sure. But I can say I live in a world where I could see this happening. I could believe that this is real. The word of God, as time goes on, will just prove itself to be more and more true. Not less, more. And then, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And the number of that mark is 666. What is the mark of the beast? You know the answer is? We don't know for sure. Now, we live in a world where it's very conceivable, again, that you could, we're not that far out technologically from people saying, you know what? It's a major hassle to risk losing your phone. Most of you all, or at least some of y'all, keep your wallet and your phone together, which I always think, no offense, it's just a little bit stupid. That's like, you know, it's, you're just high risk, okay? But what happens when we say, oh my gosh, you know, losing your phone is, is just so high risk because my whole life is tied up in my phone. What if we could just implant my phone into my body? And 15 years ago, 10 years ago, you would have said, hair crazy. But now we say, no, that's, I could see that argument, right? It's just so, you know, convenience is everything right now. Our world worships convenience. You don't want to lose your phone anyways, Right? What if this, is a, this could be very easily a chip of some sort, some sort of microchip implant on your right hand? If you don't have a hand, we can put it on your forehead. If you don't have a forehead, you don't need the mark. Right? You've got bigger issues. But we don't know what it is. It sure seems like in our world, if this were to happen right now, it'd be some sort of chip. But we don't know for sure. Okay? It's the number 666. What does that mean? Oh, it's 666. Nobody knows. Okay? Just don't overthink it. Okay, I've heard all kinds of, I've heard pastors who I love and respect, not this one, say, uh, I heard this, I was listening to a pastor in California last year, he went in this beautiful explanation of how if you read the United Nations Code, Rule 666, says that in the event of a global pandemic, we can hand all power over to one world leader. He said, that's, that's probably what it is. Because it's not Rule 665 and it's not Rule 667, but Rule 666 says we can hand over all world power. And you know there's three nations in the, in the ten-nation block of the UN or the EU, whatever it was, that don't support that. Maybe he takes out those three nations and that's the three. And he enforces Rule 666 and takes world power in the next global pandemic. And I thought, you know what? I can't say that's not it. But that sounds just a little far out. What is number 666? I don't know. 666 is not some sort of magical demonic number that if you, you know, buy something that's $6.66, you're going to be cursed. It's just the number of the mark of the beast, okay? Breathe. Like, just breathe. It's just a number, okay? But understand also what the mark of the beast is not. It's not something you will accidentally get, okay? People get worked up over, over stupid things like, oh, that's the mark of the beast. No, it's not. The mark of the beast, when it comes out, first of all, if you're a Christian right now, you won't be here. Second of all, when it comes out, there will be no mistaking what it is. It will be the sign by which you declare worship of the Antichrist. There's not going to be a lot of confusion in that. Okay? And if you refuse it, two things. One, you can't buy, sell, trade. You have no ability to create commerce. Because there will be a one world economy at that point. But also, you will then have set yourself against the world regime. Which means that the world will see you as a threat to be killed. Okay? And that's where... This beast is given authority to prevail over the saints for three and a half years. The people who say, I cannot take that mark and worship Jesus Christ. I have to make a choice. And they'll say, well, your choice then is live or die. And they'll say, then my choice is die. I can't do both. Therefore, I will take Jesus Christ. The mark of the beast, understand what it is and what it isn't. Okay? Wearing a COVID mask, God bless you. If you think that's smart or dumb or whatever, who cares? That's your problem. It's not the mark of the beast. For one thing, just be, be like stupidly practical here. goes over the lower part of your face, not the forehead, right? Like, there's people get carried away over all these things, and it's like, you know what, pal? It's in the wrong 
anatomical location. So don't oversweat it. Don't, don't get nervous about it. You're not going to take it accidentally. The mark of the beast is how you choose to rebel against Jesus Christ. You're not going to accidentally do that. And the Holy Spirit be like, oh, shoot, I forgot to warn him. It won't happen. Okay? So, we're going to be fine. Because this book is about one thing, and that's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we can read chapter 13 and say, you know, there's a lot of things in there. I can kind of maybe guess what they might be. And there's a heck of a lot of things in there. I really don't know. I know one thing. That chapter is explaining to me about the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in particular, if I am a person who missed the rapture and I am living through this period, I'm going to be reading this and it is going to be turning my focus to Jesus Christ. I'm going to be saying, Lord, come quickly. Lord, give me strength. Lord, do what you want to do in my life. It will be driving my surrender at this point. So this book is still about one thing. We didn't side trail into something else. We are still on our one thing, and that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 14. We're going to try and make it through here. Because chapter 15, is a, he goes back to sort of his more linear section of Revelation. And then I looked, verse 1, And behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled by women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever they, he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So John looks, and before the Lamb is 144,000 who have the Father's name written on their foreheads. Right after, you know, ignore the chapter break for a second. Right after the Antichrist says, you will take my mark on your forehead, John sees 144,000 people who have God the Father's mark on their forehead. Now these guys, as far as we can tell, are the same 144,000, or we presume they are, Jewish believers from earlier in the book. Okay? And they are evangelists. They're sealed by God to do a work and proclaim the gospel. It says here that they were not defiled with women for they are virgins. Some pastors look at that and say, this is a symbol to the fact that they weren't sexually immoral or they were pure before marriage. Some people say, this probably means they were virgins and they weren't defiled with women. And I say, if I'm interpreting Scripture as literally as possible, that's probably what it means. Could it mean the other two? Sure. But, there's 144,000 evangelists who have not been defiled because they are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have the mark of God on their forehead and they follow Jesus Christ wherever He goes. Now, it's important when we read Revelation that we read it for what it says and what it means, and that is to understand the end times. But there's a great point of application here. None of us are the 144,000, okay? If you believe in Jesus Christ right now, you are not part of the 144,000. That's great. You have another role in the kingdom of God. But the principle here is the same. What defines the 144,000 is they have the mark of God as the seal upon their lives, and they follow Jesus Christ wherever he goes. And we are not the 144,000, but if you want to be used by the Lord, that's the key. You be defined by letting God have control of your life and by going wherever Jesus tells you. Whatever Jesus says to you, you do that. You ask God to give you one thing to obey, and then you obey that. And then you ask him to give you one more thing to obey, and then you obey that. And then you ask God to give you one thing to obey, and you obey that. And pretty soon you look back on a lifetime of obedience that has taken you farther than you can ever imagine otherwise. Okay? So verse 6, he goes on. He says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. Just pause right there. The everlasting gospel. Gospel is the Greek word for good news. The good news that lasts forever. I just like the sound of that. To preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. 
And another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. It's a big chunk. But here's what you've got. John sees an angel flying, proclaiming the everlasting gospel to everyone, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And this is important because in Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about the end, he says the gospel will be preached in all the world and then the end will come. And some people have interpreted that verse to say, oh, Jesus can't come back yet because we haven't fully translated the Bible into every language. No, that's not what it means. Jesus can come back any second because what's going to happen? Before the end comes, an angel will proclaim the gospel to every person on earth. Everyone will hear in their own language. Now, that's not to say we should be sloppy about trying to reach the lost or trying to translate the Bible into every language. But it is to say we still, we never have grounds to say, oh, Christ cannot come back yet. We never have grounds to put off taking Jesus Christ seriously. You never say he can't come back yet. He could come back before we are done tonight, which would be rather fantastic. He can come back any Second, so the first angel proclaims the gospel. The second angel says, if you receive the mark of the beast, you will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. The wrath of God has to be experienced for every human life. But here's the thing. It does not have to be experienced by every human. When Jesus was in the garden, he said, Father, if it's willing, let this cup pass from me, but not my will yours be done. The cup of the wrath of God has already been drunk by Jesus Christ, Right? And so, no human being has to drink it. No one has to partake of the wrath of God. But, if you refuse to let Jesus drink it for you, you will drink it. And it is a very sober thought. But understand that with that thought is the promise. Somebody's going to drink it. Jesus already drank it. And he's offering to let that be sufficient for you. If you refuse, you will drink it. And then, here's a voice from heaven saying, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. At this point, the great tribulation will be so bad that your best hope is to just die. And, if you, and he says, Blessed in, who die in the Lord, if you die knowing Christ at this point, that is your absolute best option from here on out in this book. Because the great tribulation is so bad at this point. Okay? There is no reason to put off taking the Lord seriously. Then, verse 14, I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus Christ. Having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Christ reaps the earth. Picture like a field of wheat and cutting it off, harvesting it. And, and when it all goes into a threshing machine or a combine or, or pick your implement of choice, what happens? Good fruit gets separated from chaff, from just the stalks that have no value. Um, and, and so there's a separating, there's a harvesting right now at this point of the earth. And so Christ reaps. And then, verse 17, another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. The word fully ripe could also be overripe. And in essence, they're saying, hey, it's time to judge the earth because it's past due. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, 
and blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. So understand, just to sort of put the picture in context, Christ reaps the earth, and then another angel comes and reaps the earth. And I think, and this is where I'll tell you, this is what I think, um, I think the implication here is that basically Christ is allowing a final reaping of all Christians out of the earth, and then there's a final reaping of all those who have rejected Christ. And what we have here, this is, and this is where I told you we're going to kind of zoom out and zoom back in. What, we just, what he describes here is not, is chronologically at the end of the Great Tribulation. And I can say that with a fair bit of confidence for a couple reasons. Not because I'm confident in myself, by the way. That came out a little awkwardly. But anyways. So, it says the angel thrust in his sickle, throws the vine, that's an image, it's imagery, into the wine press of the wrath of God, and blood comes up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. In Greek, it's written as 6,000 stadia, and if you block out the measurements, somewhere between 185 and 200 miles long. So you have an area 185 miles long filled with blood up to the horse's bridles. Now, some people say it means it's splattering up to the horse's bridles, again, because sometimes we have a hard time interpreting prophecy literally, and we say, oh, no, it can't actually mean what it says. Maybe it could. But what he's describing here is what we call the Battle of Armageddon. And what we have, uh, we have a, a, I don't want to say a more full, we have a, another description of the Battle of Armageddon in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, at the end of his book, has a vision of this battle. And what we have, basically, I'll kind of sum it up and then we'll read it. Um, the Antichrist will have a rebellion against him. And he'll go down uh, to deal with the rebellion. And on his way back, he'll be passing through Israel and there'll be another rebellion coming. And they'll be getting ready to meet for war in the middle of the nation of Israel. And then the Lord will come back onto the Mount of Olives and they'll say, you know what? Temporary truce. We're going to wipe out God real fast. And then we'll fight each other. And that is the end of the Great Tribulation. That's when Christ comes. Okay, But here's what happens. Zechariah 14 Verse 1, he says, Behold, the day of the Lord of coming. The day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the, city, of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Sounds an awful lot like the dragon going to war against the woman. Verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to us all. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. When the Lord comes with all the saints, is that what Revelation describes as the battle of Armageddon? We'll be there either next week or in two weeks. And you have the armies of God gathered in what we call the Valley of Megiddo, or Armageddon. And the battle of the Valley of Megiddo is going to be the nations of the world against the Lord. And the Lord will come to judge the earth for its wickedness right there. And the saints will be with him. So we will be with the Lord at this point. But he goes on in Zechariah 14, verse 12. He says, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet, their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance." Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and the donkey, and on all the cattle that will be in the camps. So shall this plague be. What you have a description of is certainly nothing pretty, but it appears, if you read it and take it at face value, that you know, Colossians tells us that the Lord holds all things together. and By him all things are held together. There is not a single part of the universe that is held together apart from Jesus Christ. And when he touches down on the Mount of Olives, it appears that as the nations of the world are gathered together at war against him, he basically releases his hold 
on their bodies. And it's, it's graphic, but basically if every blood vessel of every soldier and animal in the Valley of Megiddo, which is about 185 miles long, suddenly erupts, that's what you'd have. And so it's a sober judgment. It's a very sober judgment. But understand, again, we reiterate it over and over again. No one has to go through it. No one has to. The opportunity is available for every person to let Jesus Christ drink the cup for you. And over and over again in Revelation, we see the opportunity. There's a chance, you know, even, even if you know you'll die, there's still a chance to deny the mark of the beast. There's still a chance. There's still an opportunity to repent. There's still a chance to be harvested, if you will, by Christ. When he thrusts in his sickle, and, and in essence what's happening is the great persecution of the earth against Christians is God, one more time, pulling Christians out of the way, bringing them up into heaven before this last judgment. Okay? So this is very sober. But in the sobriety of the judgment of God, what do we have? We still have what's called the wrath of the Lamb. God has never lost control. He's never lost his temper. It is his wrath because he's a just God and justice cannot delay forever or else it's not justice. But it is still the love of God and the justice of God tempering each other perfectly. And that's what we have in the book of Revelation. So, next week we're going to finish up the uh, sort of the final series of judgments and then we come to when Christ comes back at the end of Armageddon. And he's going to set up his reign on earth. And all those who know Christ will get to experience earth the way it was meant to be lived. And it will be wonderful. Revelation is not an awful book, but it's a heavy book. It's not a creepy book, but it's a sober book. Because the book is about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is very real. Heaven is very real. Hell is also very real. You don't have to like the fact that it's real. But all those are real. You have to decide what you're going to do about it. And we can all decide, just like those 144,000, to let the mark of God be on our foreheads and to go wherever Jesus goes. Right? So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We are challenged by it. We are blessed by it. And we are blown away by the relevance that it has for our lives almost 2,000 years later. Only you could have written something that would stay true for so long. And so we thank you for your word. We pray that it would stir us up. God, we thank you that Christ came for us, that we do not have to drink of the wrath of God. And we pray that you would help us to recognize the depth and the scope of that gift in a way that causes us to invite others into your family to invite others into your kingdom so that they too don't have to experience your wrath. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace that offers that free gift to us that it cost you so much. And we pray that you would go before us, fill us with your Holy Spirit, guide us and lead us. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lamb and our King, that we pray. Amen. Before I forget-